speak to you on the subject because he lives. There's an insert in your bulletins that you got this morning that uh, has some notes there. Matthew chapter 28. There are two cardinal doctrines in the Bible that the devil fights the most. The first is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. For if Jesus was not born of a virgin, then his life would have been a lie. But we know his life was not a lie, amen? He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the second cardinal doctrine that the devil fights the most is what we've talked about today, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, then we would still be in our sins. We would still be lost and on our way to hell. Paul made sure that the church at Corinth knew and understood this doctrine. In fact, he devoted the longest chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians to this truth. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he says, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which were fallen asleep in Christ perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Well, I'm glad to say we are not of all men most miserable, are we? In fact, we're filled with joy because we know we serve a risen Savior. And in this passage that Brother David read for us tonight in Matthew chapter 28, we find a day that the world would never forget. It was the crucifixion of the Lord, and it's over by three days, and we come to the resurrection of our Savior on the cross, risen from the grave, and now lives for you and for me. You ever stop and think that a lot about Jesus and a lot about his life is seen as borrowed? The animal stall where he was born was a borrowed stall and a borrowed crib. I thought about this. Even the cross that Jesus was crucified was a borrowed cross. Because, truthfully, Barabbas should have been the one that was on that cross instead of Jesus. And then he was in a borrowed tomb. And thank God in that tomb, his body was not decaying. Old man corruption did not have control of him or a hold of him. And so, I want to give you a few thoughts about Calvary and then look at some reasons that Jesus Christ lives today and what he does for us as a result of it. Calvary is where we see man at his worst, but God at his best. Calvary is where we see the awful depths of human sin and the tremendous heights of divine love. Calvary is where every man must come if he expects to be saved. Calvary is where the Son of God died so that the sons of men might live. Calvary is where men came and bathed their troubled souls and find peace that passeth all understanding. Calvary is where all the rivers of prophecy come together in a sea of fulfillment. Calvary is where a Savior died and where salvation is born. And Calvary is where the cry echoes to us today, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Our passage here in Matthew 28 is dealing with three days after that day that the world will never forget. 
And there's a lot of truths in this passage about the resurrection of our Savior. Let me give you this thought. This was the the dawn of a new day. When Jesus rose from the dead, 4,000 years had passed, and the world was rising to a new day, pretty much like every day before that. As they rose each morning and the sun came into view, it never crossed their mind on that day that something was going to happen that would be the dawn of a new day. A day that was such that mankind had never seen before. On this day, when they rose after a night's rest to begin another day, it would be unlike any other day in history. As it began to dawn, the Bible says. And that's what Matthew records for us in his gospel. This dawn would be the dawn of a new day. Nothing would ever be the same again. Everything had changed for time and for all of eternity. It was the morning of the resurrection of the Son of God. All things become new. It's a new day for all of creation. Then as we think about that dawn, in a sense, creation wears a new face. God and heaven and life and duty and death would all now look a little bit different than it did before. The veil would be taken away and the light would be seen a little bit differently than it had ever been seen before. The prophets in the Old Testament, many of them looked forward to Christ's coming and they talked about it and Abraham, you remember, said, said where is the lamb and God will provide himself a lamb But he died on that cross and now he rises from the dead and it's like the veil is lifted and they can see clearly what God was talking about. Everything now lights up to them and the sun of righteousness has risen in his glory and in his splendor. And because of that, you and I get to walk in newness of life, don't we? When we trust Christ, we have a new life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Verse number 6, if you look there in chapter 28, it says, He is not here, for He is risen. The angels tell these women at the tomb, they use two verbs here. He is not here, for He is risen, as He said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. He gives them an invitation. We talked about that a little bit this morning to come and see. The invitation to them, it's kind of like an invitation to investigate. He said to them, come and see. Look into the empty tomb, investigate it. See that it's empty. See that the Lord is not there. And then in verse 7, he gives two other words. He says, and go quickly and tell his disciples. And that's the command that's given to them and it's given to us. This is a command for them to go tell the disciples, but then the disciples were told to go and tell the rest of the world. And we're told the same thing, aren't we? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. When we get saved, we come and see, and then we go and tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me go back to verse 5 and 6. He says in verse 5, The angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not, for I know 
that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, come and see the place where he lay. This is a command for the disciples to take the initiative. He wanted the women to take the first step in getting the message of the resurrection to the disciples by telling they were going to identify themselves with the Lord. They were going to identify the fact that they had been at the tomb and they had looked and they had not seen him. But now they say, come and see. Do you ever think about this? What was the question the women asked? Verse 5, the angel answered and said unto the women. He answered something that they asked. What did they ask that the angel was answering? Well, it's not recorded, is it? We don't know what they asked. But God knew the question and God answered it for them ahead of time, didn't he? And that goes along with what Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 24 says, It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Aren't you glad that a lot of times we have questions that we ask the Lord, but before we ever ask them, He already answers them? We have burdens and needs in our life that we come to the Lord to ask for His help, and before we ask, He's already working to answer them. I believe when Abraham went up on the mountain with, with Isaac, his son, to offer him as a sacrifice, I believe as Abraham and Isaac were going up on one side of the mountain, the ram was going up on the other side of the mountain. And before they ever got up there, God had already provided the answer. Many times in our lives, we have needs and burdens and struggles. Don't ever forget, before you ever ask, God already knows about it, and he's already working on the answer for you. I'm so glad he's involved in our life today, just as, he, as much as he was in Mary and, and the ladies there. He's involved in our life, just as much as he was involved in Abraham and Isaac's life. He's involved in our life. He arranges the circumstances. It boggles my mind sometimes to think about all the things God has to arrange to put together just for certain things to happen in our lives. But I'm glad we have that kind of a God. Many times the Lord has the answer on the way before we ever ask. What is the essence of what the angel told these women? It's summed up in two words. He said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. Then he tells them he's not here. Verse 6, for he is risen. He is risen. And because he lives, there are several things that you and I have. Because he is alive, because he has risen. First of all, because he lives, he has the right to be my liberator. He has the right to be my liberator. In John, John 8, verse 36, it says, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. When we got saved, we were set free from the bondage of sin. Amen? And because he lives, he can liberate us. Because he lives, one day we're going to be liberated from this world and we're going to get to go to be with the Lord for all of eternity, but he's our liberator. All men are slaves to sin and to Satan and to self. They need liberty. The death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ has liberated me and liberates you when we trust him as our Lord and Savior. And only Jesus Christ can do that, and he can do it because he lives. Only he is the one that has the right to liberate a sinner. 
You and I, if you're saved, we are no longer slaves to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no born dominion over him. For in that he died, he died once. For in, that he, for in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Thank God that Jesus Christ liberates us, and sin no longer has dominion over us because of Jesus Christ. Not only does sin not have dominion over us, but sin should no longer depress us. It's defeated by the resurrected Christ. Romans 8, 38 says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How does sin depress us? Well, I think it depresses us because sometimes we stop and we look back and we think of what we used to be. Sometimes we think about the battles and struggles that we went through. And sometimes Christians look back and they think, well, what I could have done if I could have gone on in that sin and that disobedience. And they think about the pleasures of sin, but remember, they're but for a season. They're only temporary. And the flesh sometimes seems to win, and we don't go forward, and that depresses us. But thank God when we understand that we are liberated, that Jesus Christ can set us free. He said, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And he says to us that, that if the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. He sets us free. And we show that in our lives by not yielding to the flesh, by not yielding to the desires of the flesh and doing the things that we should not do, but yielding our bodies as instruments of righteousness, of right living, of doing what is right. We still have a sinful nature, don't we? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we didn't? <laughs> Someday that'll be take, taken care of us for it. But we still have that sinful nature. We have a new nature. We become a child of God. We know that. We get the nature. Peter says we become partakers of the divine nature of Christ. And those two natures battle inside of us. And the nature that wins and the nature that we will yield to is the nature that we think about. It has a lot to do with what's going on up here in our mind. That's why we've been talking so much recently about memorizing and meditating the Word of God and letting the Word of God, the Bible says, dwell in us richly. Because as we build God's Word, it's God's Word that helps us to understand that we can have victory. We can have confidence. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is my liberator, Satan has no claim on my life. I'm set free by the only one who has ever risen from the dead, 
by the power of God, and he's still alive today. Amen? Did you know every other person that ever rose from the dead had to die again? Sometimes we think, well, Jesus is the only one that rose. No, he didn't. What about Lazarus? That'd be a pretty good deal to be dead and be brought back to life again, but it'd be a bad deal to know you got to die again. <laughs> there were others, Elijah in the Old Testament, Elisha raised some people from the dead. They're different, but they all had to die again, but not with Jesus. Amen? He's still alive. He, he'll never die again. He is alive forevermore. And because of his life, we have been liberated. Secondly, because he lives, he has the right to be my intercessor. He has the right to be my intercessor. Isaiah 53, 12 says, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He's my intercessor. He makes intercession for the transgressors. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says this, Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth and maketh intercession for them. Remember when Peter kind of rebuked the Lord? The Lord said he was going to go to the cross and die, and Peter said, Not so, Lord. And the Lord said, Peter... Get thee behind me, Satan. Peter didn't understand. Jesus then said to Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. But then what did Jesus say to him? But what? I have what? Prayed for you. I have prayed for you. Jesus is our intercessor. How many times have you asked somebody to pray for you? Amen? All of us have done that. Aren't you glad Jesus prays for you? He's our intercessor. And by the way, there's only one intercessor between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. I can pray for you. We can pray for each other. But there's only one that can go to the Father for us, and that's Jesus. He's our intercessor between God and man. And we have access to the Father because of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross at Calvary. When we think about intercession, someone wrote this, and I jotted this quote down, Christ's appearing before the throne in heaven as the advocate of his people, presenting his finished work as the reason why their prayers should be heard and their persons accepted in him. Jesus' finished work on the cross is the reason why God the Father can accept our prayers. And then he went on and said, In thus pleading for sinners as the one mediator, his work is perfect. It precludes, it precludes all help a virgin, saints, or angels could provide and will certainly prevail. His intercession is better than anybody else or anything else can ever offer for you and me. You know, every once in a while, we'll have something that somebody wants to know, and they'll, they'll come to Vicki and say, would you ask the preacher so-and-so, you know? Because <laughs> they know she, she can get an answer. She can come and talk to him and get an answer. Some of you growing up were like me and my family. We knew which one. If we wanted something from Dad and Mom, we knew which one to send to ask, right? And we'd get that one the favorite, right? And we'd have them go ask. 
I want to tell you something. We have the favorite one. It's Jesus Christ, and we can ask him, and he goes to the Father on our behalf. You and I have a God, a Savior, who's pleading our case. And then he also has the right to be my victory. He has the right to be my victory. 1 John 5, 4 says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. How many of you have ever struggled with something in your life? Some sin, some weakness, some battle in your life? Come on, put your hands up. We've all had that, haven't we? We have somebody who can give us the victory, amen? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, But thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory through Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Victory in Jesus helps me in my trials. Victory in Jesus helps me in my troubles. Victory in Jesus helps me in my testing. Victory in Jesus shows itself great when I face temptations. J. Sidlow Baxter said this about victory that his resurrection has. He said, think how the power of the resurrection is exhibited in the Lord himself. First, it crowns his victory over self. From first to last, he had answered a firm no to every movement of his human nature which would have infringed upon his utter loyalty to the Father's will, even the death on the cross. And now that empty sepulcher in culmination testifies his complete victory over human self. Jesus had complete victory, didn't he? And he says to us, he was tempted in all points like as we are yet what? Without sin. And because he was victorious, he can help us to have victory. Secondly, it proclaims his victory over sin. Had there been sin, death could have held him. There was no sin, amen? He who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin for us. Consequently, death could not hold him. Where did death come from? Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death hath passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Jesus Christ was a man, but he was the God-man. He didn't have that sinful nature. He was born of the Holy Ghost, and he was a sinless, spotless lamb of God, lived a perfect, sinless life. And because he had victory, he proclaims victory and helps us to proclaim victory in our lives as well. Thirdly, it manifests his victory over death. Death could not hold him. Death couldn't have dominion over him. And then fourth, it signifies his victory over Satan. At last, one stronger than the strong has come to the rescue. He broke the power of Satan and mankind, and he wrenched from Satan the keys of death and hell and the grave. Now the power of the resurrection gives us the ability as believers to have victory. And one day, though we may die physically, we'll have victory over death because one day this body is going to rise again and we'll get to be with the Lord. He is our victory. Because he lives, I have a liberator. Because he lives, I have an intercessor. Because he lives, I can have victory in my life. And then because he lives, he has the right to be my example. 
He has the right to be my example. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. He left us an example. It's an interesting thing. That word example, the Greek word that's translated example, is not found any other place in the New Testament. And it means a writing copy. Think about that for a moment. Jesus was a writing copy. Where do we have the written copy? Got it right here, don't we, in the Word of God. But that's the kind of example He wants you and me to be. In other words, we are to live in such a way that we are a writing copy for our children. They watch our lives. They see the way we live. Sometimes people will say, you're the only Bible that anybody will, that some people will ever see. Some people never pick up a Bible, but they may work with you. They may live down the street. They watch your life. You, in a sense, are to be, follow his example. You are a written copy of what God wants us to be. We're an example. We're a pattern. Because he lives, we have the example of how we should deal with our enemies. Even on the cross, you remember the Lord Jesus Christ prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Loving those who use us is hard, but we have the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our example in how to deal with pain and agony and suffering. He, the Bible says, endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? One of the reasons is because he wanted us to, to leave us an example how we should deal with suffering. You know how we deal with suffering most of the time, don't, don't you? Honey, I got a headache. Would you please get me some aspirin or Tylenol? Or, oh, you know, we, we, don't we begin to complain? Grumble. I know none of you ever do any of that. Why is this happening to me? Why does everything always happen to me? God gave us an example, didn't he? He endured the suffering, despising the shame. What an example. See, our problem is we're still dealing with the flesh, aren't we? And suffering and pain, you know, I don't like pain. It hurts me, right? We don't like it. But sometimes our greatest testimonies come out of our deepest pain and sorrow in our lives as others watch our life. And then he's our example how to hurt the, how to help the hurting. Many times I'm confronted with the hurting, and I'll be honest with you, I don't always have the answer for them. I stand by the bedside in hospitals many times with people dying. I don't have the answer. I wish I could do like Jesus. Every funeral he ever went to, he raised the people from the dead. Wouldn't you like to go to a funeral and say, well, folks, Sorry, we're not going to the cemetery today. We don't need a grave. Come forth, you know, and call them forth from the dead. I wish I could do that. God didn't give me the power. I'm not God. But he teaches us how to help the hurting. That's one of the reasons why in every funeral I try to give the gospel and tell people how they can come to know Christ as Savior. I can't raise the dead person, but I can tell people who are spiritually dead how they can come alive in Christ Jesus. A young man some years ago whose parents attended our church was killed in a tragic accident. 
And I asked his brother, I said, did your brother ever get saved that you know of? He said, oh, yes, he got saved. I said, when did he get saved? Tell me about it. He said, he got saved when you preached grandpa's funeral. He asked the Lord to save him at that funeral. One of the greatest opportunities to see people come to Christ, and I've probably seen more people saved through the years of my ministry at funerals than maybe any other time. We had a young lady in our church, 17 years old, Fell asleep at the wheel and hid a tree and died. I preached her funeral in 50, I think it was 52 people. I gave an invitation just like I did this morning and invited people to come forward. And 52 people came forward in that service and we gave them literature and material and got their names and address. Got saved at that funeral. One of the amazing things, I've had times once in a while somebody will call me and ask me to preach a funeral and it's somebody that's a relative of somebody in our church and I don't know the people. They're lost. Much of, most of their family's not saved. Now, I've had times when I went and preached a funeral. There might be a, a hundred people there, and out of the hundred, ninety of them may have never heard the gospel. And I've been shocked sometimes when I've shared the gospel and invited people to trust Christ, and I've seen sometimes half of that group trust the Lord and get saved. You see, the Jesus is an example to help us to know how to help hurting people to point them to the one who can give life, to point them to the one who can give them eternal life. And when people are hurting, you study the New Testament, and Jesus always cared, didn't he? He always took time. He stopped. He healed. We can't always heal, but we can pray for them, and we can let them know that we do care. It reminds us of the question that the songwriter asked, does Jesus care? And The answer is, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Amen. And His suffering helps us to help other people when they're suffering. He's our example. And then He has the right to be my security. He has the right. Because He lives, He has the right to be my security. In 1 John 3, verse 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is is pure. He's, a, he's the rock of our salvation. He's our security. He is our refuge in the time of storm. He's our security. He is the reason in our service for Him. And that's true security. Because the Lord Jesus Christ arose from the dead, He's our security. In a sense, and I've had times when my kids were little and I've had times when other kids were little. Sometimes the little kids will come to me after church and they want, to have, they want a sucker, you know. And, and the real little ones, I'll say, okay, well, let's go to my office and they'll take my hand or take my finger and I'll take them across and over to the office. When our kids were little, I'd take their hand or take their finger. In a sense, you might say, we reach out and take the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ or the finger of the Lord Jesus Christ and he reaches up and takes the hand of the Father and He is our security. He's our security. Isaiah 49, verse 16 says, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hand. Thy walls are continually before me. 
I've graven thee upon the hands of the palms of my hand. God says, you and I, our names are graven on the palms of his hand. John 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. I think of it like this. When I got saved, I'm in the hand of the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says I'm also in the hand of God the Father. And then he says the two of us are one and no man can pluck us out. You talk about double security. We're in the hand of the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Father. He is our security and we can trust him. Not only that, but he gives us his Holy Spirit to seal us. He says in Ephesians 1.13, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. We trusted Christ as our Savior and he seals us. He sealed the deal, amen, to make sure that we're going to get to heaven someday. Ever since the day you got saved, Satan's tried to discourage you. He's tried to stop you. He's tried to disappoint you. But because he lives, we know we have security. My security is proof. It's proven because it's written in the word of God. I can take God at his word. My security is attached to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our security. Because he lives, I have a liberator. Because he lives, I have an intercessor. Because he lives, I have victory. Because he lives, I have security. Because he lives, the songwriter wrote, and we sang it tonight, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives.